Hey everyone, this is Josh Itzo, author of The Fiduciary Formula, and you're listening to The Fiduciary You Podcast, where I share the latest information on corporate retirement plan trends, ideas, and best practices. On the show, I feature industry experts across multiple disciplines to get their unique perspectives and actionable insights about what it takes to navigate the complexities of ERISA and provide a great retirement plan for employees in a rapidly changing world. If you're a retirement plan decision maker at your company or a retirement industry professional, this podcast is for you. Welcome to episode number 19 of the Fiduciary You podcast. My guest today is Jerry Schlichter, founding and managing partner of Schlichter, Bogard, and Denton. If you work in the retirement industry or you're a fiduciary to a large mega plan, you know all about Jerry. He's been featured in numerous national publications, including the New York Times, Bloomberg, USA Today, and the Wall Street Journal for his and his firm's success in pioneering claims of excessive fees in defined contribution plans. He's obtained precedent-setting results involving claims of excessive fees against large employers and for the reduction in fees his cases have caused throughout the retirement industry. He's won or settled the three largest excessive fee lawsuits in history, including $62 million from Lockheed Martin, $57 million from Boeing, and $55 million from ABB. He's also been called the Lone Ranger of the 401k by the New York Times, public enemy number one for 401k profiteers by Investment News, and the industry's most feared attorney by Chief Investment Officer. On today's episode, Jerry and I had an awesome conversation. We discussed the economics of taking on 401k and 403b cases, the past, present, and future of retirement plan litigation, data as a plan asset, cross-selling additional services to participants, and how litigation will become increasingly complex over time. And finally, whether litigation will continue to come down market. We also discussed his best piece of advice for ERISA fiduciaries that you don't want to miss. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Fiduciary You podcast. Jerry Schlechter, thank you so much for being a guest on the Fiduciary You podcast. Happy to be here, Josh. Well, I'm really excited to chat with you today. You know, I think you, you're you're one of the biggest stars on the podcast so far, and I've had a lot of a lot of well-known folks. That's kind of high praise for you, and you've had a tremendous impact on the 401k and the 403b industry over the past 15 years or so, and and really excited to kind of get into that conversation today. Maybe to start with. You know, in 2006, I believe it was eight cases that that you filed against plan sponsors. Uh, I think ABB, Boeing, Lockheed were, were three of those as well, which happened to be three of the largest settlements that were out there. Can you talk about how you originally got into the space and how it was brought to your attention and, and, and what you did in order to kind of prepare, you know, to bring cases in this space? Sure. Well, in context, I and my firm have always only represented people, individuals taking on corporations or other institutions, and people who don't have the wherewithal, the financial wherewithal to pay an hourly wage. So my entire career as a lawyer has been spent working only on a contingent fee, which is the key to the courthouse for the average person who takes on a larger entity. I've also come from a position of wanting to use the law to to benefit people. So that's just an overall arching view. We began getting, as we saw the sea change in the American retirement system from the defined benefit model to the DC plan, 401k plan model, we began to get more and more questions from our individual clients about their retirement. 
along the lines of, I don't know that I'm going to be able to retire when I thought I would. I'm not sure I'm going to have the lifestyle in retirement I was hoping to. And I can't figure anything out in the 401k plan that my employer now has. Can you look at any of this? And with those questions, we did a very, very deep dive into the industry, coming from no knowledge of the industry whatsoever. Complete, I was a complete outsider. In fact, the first book I read was 401k plans for dummies, which described me as I was reading it. But and it took a year and nine months to really understand and get our arms around the industry practices that were going on. Things like revenue sharing, paying for record keeping through uh, revenue sharing lineups with the record keepers, investment products, things of that nature. And I was astonished at two things. Despite the fact that 401k plans had become the American retirement system and ERISA had been around for 30 years, as well as 401k plans. And despite the fact that any participant can bring an action for excessive fees or imprudent investments, no one had ever done so. With 600,000 401k plans in America. And the Department of Labor, as the overseer, the regulator, had that authority also. Unbelievably to me, I couldn't believe that the Department of Labor had never brought a case for excessive fees in an environment where the fiduciaries, the plan sponsors, have the obligation to make sure that fees are reasonable and act for the participant's interest, as you know, with no litigation and no regulation of that duty, and in a context where Nobody's bonus or salary, no company's bottom line depended on the performance of the 401k plan. So what we had was what we saw was things going on in a dark closet with no litigation or regulation and American workers suffering from that. So it was a difficult decision to take this on. And there's a reason that nobody had ever done it among others, not understanding perhaps what was going on, but also unlike the Department of Labor, which could have brought two or three cases and probably had a very broad impact throughout the industry, for a private lawyer such as myself and my St. Louis law firm to take this on meant everything had to be financed out of our pocket. And having been involved in other so-called bet the farm litigation in some environmental case and some other work, civil rights cases, I knew that if we do this, this would be nuclear war, literally. And the strategy would be to try to kill the area of litigation before it ever got off the ground. So to do that meant having the staying power, the perseverance for a long battle a long journey. And that meant a monster amount of resources would have to be devoted for it. So I put, and my two partners put our houses on the line, everything on the line to carry this forward. And not without a lot of sobering assessment of what that would mean. 
And I decided we would do this. And as, as you pointed out, we filed against some of the biggest companies in America, starting on September 11th, 2006. And it became exactly what I anticipated, a nuclear battle. I remember very well, early on, the largest insurer for fiduciary liability coverage for Fortune 500 companies. And, and there were there are eight or nine primarily who insure this kind of exposure and fiduciary coverage, which have different layers of coverage in various plans. I remember being told by the head guy from the largest of these companies, he said, I've organized all the insurers against this. We're all going to fight. We're not going to settle any cases. And we're going to put you and your firm out of business. <laughs> so, and we don't care what we pay our uh, defense lawyers. We don't care what we pay in costs to do this because we don't want to establish a whole new area of litigation. Right. So that was sobering, but we launched nonetheless. You know, you taught that. So thinking about the economics of that and really kind of the bet the farm, you know, litigation, it, it's funny. And thinking about obviously fees were a major thrust of, you know, the original litigation. And even, you know, even today, you know, it's it's interesting when I look at kind of the, I look at 2006, there were eight cases filed. I think in 2008, there was something like maybe 107 cases filed. And then it kind of dwindled down. And I think in 2013, there were only two cases, but then it ramped back up in 2000, you know, 2016 and 17, I think there were over a hundred cases. And then you know, last year there was something like, I think like 200 cases in like a 12 month period or so that, that, that were filed. And it was interesting. You hear in the industry, there's a big focus on wellness now. And, and you, you hear that, you know, a lot of people saying, well, it can't be about fees, you know, fiduciary and funds any longer. But I would argue that if you look at what's happening, fees are still front and center. A lot of these cases, it's still very much front and center. And, you know, obviously there's more conversation and more transparency now than there was 15 years ago. I, I I used to say that, you know, 15 years ago, the second best skimming operation in America was 401k industry behind Las Vegas. And that was mainly because of the lack of transparency. A lot of these asset-based fees, revenue sharing, and, and nobody really had an idea, even fee structures. And we're going to get into that as well. These asset-based fees that allowed fees to grow kind of unchecked over a long period of time. What do you think about when you take on a case? Because, you know, I would imagine you don't take every case that comes your way. Like, so, so what would you say in a normal, a normal year, like what percentage of cases that you're presented with do you actually take on and what's kind of the process you go through in order to determine whether or not a case is worthy to, to take? Over the years, Josh, we've taken on probably less than 10% of the cases that have come across the radar screen. And the process for us is a very serious process. Obviously at the beginning, again, we spent a year and nine months before filing any case. That was much about learning the industry and industry practices. Even now, 15 years later, we will often spend six months digging or up to six months digging into the particular plan, digging into the practices, looking at fees, looking at the performance of investments historically, 
and a variety of other things. So it's a very serious process to take a case on. And uh, as I say, we probably decline to pursue over 90% of the cases that we look at. That may well not be true of other firms, but that is what we do because I make the assumption in every case, this will be a battle to the end, no matter what that is. And we, in every case, make the commitment, we will take this all the way as far as the case requires, including seeking the U.S. Supreme Court to take the case if need be. And that has been borne out in multiple cases. You mentioned ABB and Boeing and Lockheed. Those came, well, the ABB case, which was the first case in the history of the United States to go to trial, went on 13 years, a major one-month trial with against Fidelity and ABB. ABB had two national law firms and five lawyers at their table. Fidelity had three national law firms and six lawyers at their table in the courtroom, 11 lawyers at their tables, eight or nine more lawyers in the seats for the duration of that one month trial. And uh, they spent, we found out later, $42 million in attorney's fees fighting us just through the trial. On top of the $55 million that they ultimately settled for. Yeah, well, and the original judgment that we won was 36. Right. They pursued, after that 42 million, they pursued two appeals and uh, sought leave in the Supreme Court before ultimately a settlement was reached, as I say, almost 13 years later for $55 million plus untold attorney's fees and untold expenses for expert witnesses and so on. So that was representative of the battle and the commitment that we had, we made. We had 27,000 attorney hours in that case. And you you foot the bill for that. So there's obviously revenue over 13 years. It's not like you can... Uh have somebody on your your team working for, you know, not paying them for 13 years. So you're 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 funding the cost of that litigation. All those attorneys in my office get a paycheck every two weeks and the expert witnesses, which themselves were very costly. When you're talking about reviewing, uh, say, a half a million documents, expert witnesses in investment finance, fiduciary practices, record keeping, and so on, that ha- they get paid, win or lose, they get paid when they do the work and you carry that cost. So we carried those costs for over a decade as well. They were certainly massive. And that was one case. Boeing was the second largest plan in America with at the time, I believe $40 billion in, in the plan. And uh, that went on about over nine years. The Edison case, Tibble v. Edison, which was the case that we asked the U.S. Supreme Court to take, and the first and only case the Supreme Court has taken, and the landmark decision, unanimous decision by the Supreme Court, favorable to our position, was also 12 and a half years of litigation, carrying those costs, carrying all that time. One, One person didn't get paid during all that time, and that was me. (laughs) <laughs> right. Uh, that's the, you know, being the, you know, being the business owner that, right, you're, you're in those cases, the one who gets paid last. If at all. If at all. You know, you, we, you mentioned and touched on a number of, of different things that will 
we'll certainly get into. You know, those original cases, and just as a as a an interested observer, is it seemed like you know you you had these arguments that you made early on, and some of those cases that weren't settled favorably, but it seemed like over time, you know, you came in as you spent a couple of years, you know, ramping up the knowledge, but then, you know, that's kind of like practice in some ways, right? Once you get into the actual game, you have to see, you know, how courts ruled. And it definitely seemed like you dialed in and honed over time the arguments that you would make. There were some that, you know, didn't seem to to be successful. There were other ones that that did. And it, it seems like in looking at, at what you did was you developed this mastery over years of knowing what arguments were, were going to have a, a higher probability of being successful and ones that weren't. Is that kind of how things played out? That as you learned more and you saw more how courts were ruling, that you honed in some of that mastery and that expertise? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. So early on, multiple cases were dismissed by federal judges who we felt didn't fully understand the nuances of these uh, plans and basically ruled that as long as there's an array of options with an array of fees, it's participant choice and that's the end of the inquiry. So the mantra became, these cases are going nowhere. And that's why what happened was there was a dearth of cases, fi- other cases filed by law firms for years because these cases were being dismissed. In fact, I had a federal judge tell me at one point, it looks like these cases are going nowhere. Have you thought about just dropping them all? And I said, uh, no, we are in this for the long run. And if we hadn't had that commitment at the outset to the long run, if it had been looked at simply on a case-by-case basis or a short-term basis, one could say the rational decision would have been to do what that judge suggested. Right. But I made the commitment when I decided to launch this journey that we're going to be in this no matter what happens for the duration. And that resulted in a necessity to just like it's it's really akin to a startup business it's an entrepreneurial approach because you're financing everything the time and the expense and risking all of that because if you lose all that is down the tubes your client can't pay you anything so you have to be ready to pivot and to see the direction in which things are going so as the law keep in mind there was no law as such developed under ERISA in this part of ERISA. So the law had to evolve. And as it evolved, it was vital that we watch what was happening and build on those precedents accordingly, so that as the nuances of some of these practices came out, and as judges began to dig deeper and understand what was going on, we in turn presented the cases in ways that would perhaps help the judges understand more about what was going on which again resulted in the the first trial, the ABB success, and then ultimately the US Supreme Court landmark decision in Tibble v. Edison, which in that case was a landmark case because we had supporting briefs from the Solicitor General of the US and the AARP in support of our position, 
Oh, those like amicus briefs? Is amicus that briefs, that? yeah. Supporting briefs, agreeing with our position and making arguments. They had, the other side had the Chamber of Commerce and the Mutual Fund Industry Trade Group, but all agreed on both sides, it would affect every 401k plan in America. So that was of great importance in ultimately shaping the way the law has been developed. You know, we talked about, you know, share classes and revenue sharing, and that was a, a big, a big thrust, you know, certainly early on. And even today is, you know, this this move towards lowest cost share classes, a lot of the issues in a lot of cases. And, you know, the the with share classes, kind of the mutual fund industry is like an alphabet soup. And that can make it hard at times is what one person says is an institutional retail. There's not there's not an apples to apples comparison across different fund families. One of the things, and, and this has become more prevalent in the industry, right? We have asset-based record-keeping fees, so a percentage of assets or through revenue sharing. And that just by definition, as plans grow, revenue grows. And quite frankly, the industry is addicted to and loves these asset-based fees because you know you get a pay raise and you don't have to ask for it. It's just kind of automatically built in. You guys really pushed the, the narrative and continue around the fact that record-keeping fees are most prudent if they are, you know, on a per participant basis or a per capita basis instead of this this pro rata basis. Can you talk a little bit about kind of your philosophy on fee structure? Because fee structure has a really big impact. You know, in a lot of cases, these plans don't grow because record keepers do a good job or because, you know, advisory firms do a great job. Not to say that they don't, but that's not the reason these plans grow. They grow certainly because of market performance, but but mostly because they get funded every single pay period and their contributions that are going in. And we see that growth. So what's your overall philosophy on asset-based versus per participant or per capita fees? Oh, this goes back to the original examination. As we looked at uh, record keeping, it became apparent that it's, it's a commodity service. It's something that has nothing to do with asset size. So that if you have $100,000 in your account and I have $5,000, it doesn't cost multiples uh, for record keeping your account as mine. And it was, it was to me, it looked like a square peg in a round hole. Why? And coming from outside the industry, I think this, I asked this question because it just made common sense to ask, whereas had I been a part of the industry, I'm not sure the question would have been asked. It, it may, it was taken for granted by people. Why do you take a commodity service like that that has nothing to do with asset size, yet pay for it out of an asset-based charge. In fact, when we brought these cases, I got a call from the DOL in DC asking me to come there to the EBSA folks to explain what we were doing so they could understand this. And I, I did that and they asked me, what are some practices that are common to your cases? I said, well, here's one paying for record keeping that has nothing to do with asset size by an asset-based fee that grows just because somebody puts more money in their plan, in their account. They clearly had not thought about that at all. Which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Yes, this is the regulator who is responsible for America's retirement system. And I said, here's another one, paying retail fees or a retail share class for a billion dollar plan 
that a $500 investor would pay when the obligation of the fiduciary is to get the best rate for somebody in their like status. And in the investment management industry, it's a very fundamental principle that size matters. Again, they did not, they didn't see anything wrong with that. They do now, and to their great credit, they have filed uh, supporting briefs in numerous cases, taking on uh, retail share class fees and record keeping uh, on asset based charges. But it was just astonishing to me that nobody had ever brought this up. And it was costing workers a lot of money. One of the most compelling statistics I know of in this industry is actually on the DOL website that a 1% difference in fees over a 35-year work career makes a 28% difference in the retirement assets at the end of that career. It's a big deal. But right. the average person say, well, 1%, that doesn't sound like much. That's that's right. not a big deal. Look, they don't have a, an appreciation of that. Yeah, it's interesting. If I say to you 50 basis points or $50,000, which one of those has a more visceral effect on you? No question about it. $50,000, right? Right. Well, 50 basis points on a $10 million plan is $50,000. And I think that's, you know, it's interesting you know, here's having done this, you know, been in this space as a fiduciary for 16 plus, 17 plus years. One of the things, and and this is what I wish would change is that, and I think the reason why there was a lack of focus on fees is because unlike with health benefits, for instance, you know, a a company, when they pay health benefits, it comes out of their P&L, it hits their bottom line. Whereas with retirement, because of you know, administrative versus settler fees under ERISA is that they can put all the costs. They don't, it actually doesn't, they, they don't have to, they can, but they don't have to pay it from corporate assets. And so if they're putting all of the cost into the plan, which is being borne by participants, they really don't feel the actual cost because it's not, it's not hitting their bottom line. And because of that, whether it's a, you know, an act of omission or an act of commission, when it's not actually, when you're not actually having to pay for it, you're going to be much less vigilant or committed to trying to negotiate because it doesn't feel like it impacts you. And that's kind of one of my theories over the years is why, you know, why there hasn't been more of a focus on not just benchmarking, because I think that's in the industry, we get really focused on benchmarking. And if somebody benchmarked your plan and my plan, and my plan is really crappy with high fees, and your plan's a little bit less crappy, but still has high fees, you'll you'll feel good about the benchmark because you're better than my plan is. And and you know, unfortunately, I think we we and and one you know one of my goals is to to bring more awareness to the industry that it's not simply about fiduciaries benchmarking, but it's more about negotiating, using economies of scale, using common sense approaches to try to ultimately get a fair and equitable and reasonable deal for participants. Because ultimately, like you said, those fees are insidious. And as they grow over time, there's a cost to services, no doubt about it. But you know, ultimately, if fiduciaries aren't watching out for their people, Participants have very little control over a plan. They can only determine, do I participate? What do I contribute? And, you know, what investments do I select 
from this menu that's been given to me. And, you know, if the fees are high, like you might be able to pick the lowest cost fund in the plan, but it still could be really high. And that has an impact, you know, ultimately on, on outcomes and successful retirements. So the need is for these fiduciaries or, or advisors to a plan to keep very much in mind that service providers who are not fiduciaries are going to be trying to maximize their revenue. And that's not illegal uh, under ERISA, but the, the gatekeeper for those fees, the police person, is the fiduciary or the advisor. And they, they have to be a break on those fees. And it's very easy, obviously, for a service provider seeking to maximize its profits to see whether that fiduciary is taking the role seriously or not. So if they say, well, gee, what's your, what's your rate? What's your what funds charge what fees and do nothing more, then obviously they're not going to get the best fees out of that service provider unless they're stretched. We see that all the time in cases where, and even now, even in recent years when there's been industry-wide reduction in record-keeping fees, for example, as well as investment management fees, we've seen unilateral moves by record keepers to reduce fees where somebody, a record keeper will come along and say, uh, gee, we, we want to come to you and reduce your record keeping fees or give a, a rebate for the revenue sharing that we've never done before. We're really working with you. And so some of these plan sponsors jump at that opportunity, of course, but what they don't recognize is this is being done because of fee pressure, fee compression, and it isn't necessarily, or in most cases, the best fee they could get if they simply negotiate it. Right. They should use that as a starting point, not right. the end point. Not the end point. And so one of the things that, that is interesting in these cases, in these settlements, or when, they, you know, when they're fully adjudicated, and what you seem to have done is you know, there's the monetary settlement, but then there's non-monetary relief as well. So things like commitment by the plan sponsor that they're going to go out and do an RFP every three years, let's say. And I kind of think of like the monetary relief is like the plan sponsor saying, I'm sorry, but the non-monetary relief is them going a step further and say, and I'm not going to do it anymore, as opposed to just, you know, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Is that how you see it? And talk about a little bit about the importance in your mind of non-monetary relief in addition to the actual monetary settlements. I would agree with that assessment. I'm sorry. And the the non-monetary piece being, I'm not going to do it again, but I would add, I'm going to do better also as part of the non-monetary relief. This this non-monetary component is hugely important, Josh, and goes back to the fundamental philosophical viewpoint that I had in starting this, which is to try to accomplish something for American workers and retirees beyond just having a job or getting an income as a lawyer or law firm. To me, to take on all this and put everything on the line and then only get past compensation and present the possibility that an employer could go right back to the old practices and do it all over again and require a whole new lawsuit after years was just unacceptable. So I decided early on that we would always 
insist on non-monetary relief to benefit the plan participants going forward if that were necessary to correct some practices. What we've seen is in a lot of cases, there are changes that are made during the litigation in the direction of what we've said should happen. That didn't happen so much in the earlier cases, I think probably because companies were reluctant to admit by action that they should have been doing things differently, you know, eliminating asset-based record keeping, for example, doing RFPs on a per participant basis or replacing retail mutual fund share classes with institutional share classes, things of that nature. But as the as things have evolved, many companies and, and institutions in, in 403B plans have made these changes after litigation has been introduced because they see the handwriting on the wall. But in, in those cases, there have been some where Virtually everything we asked to be done was done by the time the case was over. But where that's not been the case, yes, we have insisted on and and fought for changes to the plan along these lines, RFPs, and and that's not that shouldn't be controversial. Even DOL says it should be done every three to five years. Industry experts say that that's the only true test whether you're getting a good deal. Put it out for bids. And, and then more recently, we've seen as, and this is a whole separate subject, but as fees have compressed, we've seen what I call whack a mole. Other revenue opportunities pop up for record keepers and service providers. For example, using the data collected, the record, the confidential information, the most confidential information comparable to health information to your doctor used by record keepers to sell their products and things like wealth management or insurance policies or IRAs. So we think that's wrong. We think that's a misuse of the information that the record keeper receives. And we have uh, insisted in multiple cases in recent years that if that was being done, that practice be stopped and that information not be used to sell and market other products and services. I actually, I think maybe the first place that I saw that, and, and maybe it appeared before that, but I believe in the Vanderbilt settlement. That was the first case ever to have that. And 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 this idea of, you know, them, and I believe, I could be wrong, but I think maybe Tia was the, you Tia know, was. the record keeper for that plan, but essentially requiring that, that Tia did not solicit using that, that, participant data as an asset to, to cross-sell other services. And so in thinking about that, I, I know recently in the Shell case, I believe the judge basically ruled that data was not a plan asset. And I think he had gone back and he had looked at, at the ERISA statute and it mentions investments, but it doesn't mention data. It does reference the fact that the Department of Labor is able to define data or define plan assets in you know, ways that aren't in the ERISA statute. But not surprisingly, it's a nearly 50-year-old regulation. And, and this kind of concept of data didn't really, to that extent, didn't exist back then. The DOL, I also believe, hasn't provided any guidance about data being a plan asset. 
I suspect that 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 will become there'll be some guidance at some point. But, you know, that was kind of I think as those of us in the industry, common sense would say, well, if you're using data to, you know, to sell other things or to solicit that that is, you know, you're getting you're getting benefit from that. And so I think with Vanderbilt, what you got is non-monetary relief is that the record keeper couldn't solicit. However, if a participant requested information, that that would be okay. Is that kind of how you see the world is that they're not using, they shouldn't. And even though it's it, it with that ruling, you know, plan sponsors could still negotiate and require perhaps via the contract that they have with the record keeper, not to do any outbound solicitation, but still be allowed to respond to a request by a participant. Is that kind of how you see the world? Yes, that is exactly how we see it. And that's exactly what we have said in Vanderbilt for the first time. And then, and now in other uh, 403B cases and, and uh, 401k plans. And we, we see this more in the 403B context with these universities. I'll give you an example. The 403B space is the Wild West. <laughs> yes, yes. And that was, that itself was its own set of factors to make the decision to launch those cases which we did in 2016. Again, before that time, we so at that point, we had a decade of 401k litigation, which was being uh, accepted more and more in courts, but never a case brought against a uh, fiduciary in a 403b plan. Now, obviously, there are some differences in terms of things like annuities being uh, used and, and some and the products in the plan, but the fiduciary duty is exactly the same. And we spent over a year, apart from what we did in the 401k space, looking at the 403b industry separately before we ever filed any 403b cases. And there was a risk in filing those cases that courts would say those distinctions were the whole ballgame and uh, some of the things that 401k sponsors should be doing don't apply to 403b sponsors. So they could have been dismissed. As it turned out, two were dismissed, Penn and Northwestern. Penn, we took an appeal and that dismissal was reversed and that case was recently settled. Northwestern was upheld, the reversal was upheld on appeal. And we've asked the US Supreme Court to take that case. And the Supreme Court recently asked the Solicitor General for its views of whether they should take the case or not. So more to come on, on the Northwestern case. But I'll give you an example, practical example of how this is being done. And this is all a matter of public record in the NYU trial, which was the first 403B case to go to trial. In that case, one of the uh, named plaintiffs was a professor of endocrinology in the medical school whose plan was also part of the case. She said she's a 39-year professor and knows a, a lot about endocrinology, but she's a financial illiterate. Those are her terms. And she said she, and she had a very large seven-figure balance in her 403B account. Tia she testified in open court, approached her and said she should take $300,000 out of her account 
and give it to Tia to manage. And so she said, well, I'm a financially illiterate. So I thought they were who my employer picked to run the plan. I thought I should do what they said. So I did that. They then took the $300,000, again, matter of record, and charged over 80 basis points for managing it and put it into various mutual funds, some of which were TIA proprietary mutual funds, and all of which had their own fees. So fees on fees and taxable income. And then she said, to top it off, she said she was asked by the person that she thought was acting in her financial interest, but who was actually selling products and services, do you have kids? She said, well, no, my husband and I don't have children, but we do have a dog. So he said, well, have you ever thought about what happens to your dog if you and your husband die before your dog does? Who's going to take care of your dog? You need insurance to protect your dog. <laughs> At which point she said. That's unbelievable. That's, that's, I mean, that, you know, if it weren't kind of tragic, I mean, it's kind of funny in some ways, but it, it you know, it also is, that's why it's so important. I think, you know, this idea of the DOL and, you know, just the, the importance of fiduciary standards is just, it's such, it, it, it's amazing to me that that in 2021, we're still fighting over, you know, whether or not the financial services industry should be fiduciaries to clients. But And the problem is with that, when you have a record keeper with this confidential information, who's got the biggest balances? When will they be retiring? What are their selected investments? Their social security number. To take that information and then target the people who have large balances and, and, and then contact them when they believe that the representative is there on campus to just answer questions and be of service and be in, acting in their best interest. And to do this kind of thing is our position is, yes, this, is, this information is a plan asset in the shell case that was held not to be the case, but we are continuing to pursue this position because a plan asset is something of value that arises out of the plan. And there is no question that th this information has great value. Look at the ads, Super Bowl ads, Fidelity runs for IRAs to the general public. Well, if you've got a captive audience whose balances you already know, and you've got the imprimatur of your employer's approval to be involved in their retirement assets, that's a tremendous marketing advantage that gives you three legs up over somebody advertising to the public and has great value. So we believe it, it is a plan asset, but even if it is not a plan asset, our position is this is an abuse of the role of record keeper it's a breach of their obligation to keep that information confined to uses in the plan, not outside the plan. The same way as you ex expect your doctor wouldn't take your medical information and sell that to a drug company. Right. Just basic. Even just, com just common sense, if you think about it that way. Yeah. This is a, an ongoing battle that will continue to be asserted in the courts. Yeah. And I mean, you just you, you think about just in general, big data, the value of data in general and why, you know, why just think about from the technology industry and all these apps. And you think about with, you know, a Google or a Facebook or an Amazon, for instance, right, that they are 
able to use data to determine likes or needs and then offer up, you know, services or products. Now, the difference is that Google and Facebook and, you know, all these technology companies, Amazon, are not held to a fiduciary standard. So exactly. that's the difference. You know, so that's the data privacy piece. So not using, you know, not using participant data to get a leg up. The other aspect, and, and we're seeing more and more of a focus on cybersecurity. I mean, even look on the East Coast where I live, the hack of like petroleum pipelines. I mean, we just, I just, it looked like the 1970s last week when I went to fill my truck up because it looked like, you know, that gas was going to be disrupted. And I mean, there were, there were, there were lines with 20, 30 cars waiting to fill up. And so this idea of hackers being able to get data, there was a case, I think that was filed that, that ultimately got dismissed against Abbott Labs, but I think still pending against a light solutions who was the record keeper. But the, you know, the gist of it was there was a, a participant and she had $245,000 stolen from her account because of, you know, the allegations were that there weren't appropriate security measures in place to protect that data. And a hacker was able to go in and change her password and ultimately transfer money into a separate bank account. The case was brought against Abbott Labs and Alight Solutions as the, the record keeper. I believe it was the allegations were dismissed against Abbott. Right. And they're still pending against a light. So what are your thoughts around data privacy and what plan sponsors and and need to be doing in terms of monitoring or prudent monitoring of data security as it relates to their plan and, and the assets and the data within the plan? Well, as to data privacy, they should be having a, a bright line prohibition against using the information gathered in the role of record keeper for any function outside the plan. And there are many institutions that now do that. Lots of them do that, including institutions that have been that have settled with us for 3B plans. As to data security, two things, duty of the record keeper and the fiduciary duty. As to the record keeper, the record keeper's duty is akin to a fiduciary duty to protect the confidentiality of that information, that very sensitive information it has access to by virtue of its role as record keeper. And so as the court held in the Abbott case, there the record keeper, the case is being allowed to go forward to show potentially that the record keeper didn't take necessary cybersecurity precautions to protect that delicate information. And that's the duty of any record keeper in a, in a plan. But there's an additional duty on the part of the fiduciary. While the fiduciary isn't keeping the records, the fiduciary in its role as fiduciary has an obligation to determine whether the record keeper has necessary cybersecurity protections for that information before the fiduciary allows the record keeper to have it and should be monitoring that information, th those cybersecurity precautions on an ongoing basis as part of its obligation as fiduciary. That's the position that we take. Without that, the fiduciary would be saying, well, it's not our problem, even though it's our participants' information, because this has 
potential to have severe impact on participants. When I read that complaint, if memory serves me correctly, I think the representative from Alight actually provided personally identifiable information with like the hacker and said, you know, is your address still dot, 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 something along those lines, which pretty incredible from that perspective. I think uh, part of that arises from the fact that this has not been the subject of, as you said, of DOL guidance and uh, has not. And it's a it's a recent phenomenon to have all this hacking going on. And it hasn't been the subject of litigation. We've seen that the litigation in this space of fiduciary practices has shaped behavior on the part of a plan participant, I mean, plan sponsors and, and advisors and fiduciaries because of the fear of being sued. Right. So at this point, uh, there hasn't been that fear so much created on the part of fiduciaries for the cybersecurity of plan information. Well, and you know, it's interesting too is, this idea, and I don't see disclosure as a cure-all. I think a lot of, you know, and, and actually this was, you know, in the, I think in the Supreme Court case, I believe the risk of statute of limitations is six years or three years if there's actual knowledge. And in that case, in the ruling, Judge Samuel Alito had basically said that disclosure isn't enough. And I think historically, that's what, what if you look at 404C as an example, right, providing, you know, access to information and disclosure, but not being a cure-all. And, and he talked about that it, actual knowledge can't simply be giving information to participants if it can't be proven that participants actually read the information. And he differentiated between actual knowledge and I believe what he called willful blindness Willful blindness, as I understood it, and I'm obviously not an attorney, but, you know, willful blindness, having the information and and choosing not to look at it would be considered actual knowledge. But just getting information, but never looking, not reading through it wouldn't be actual knowledge. Can you describe what the difference between those those two concepts are? Yes, uh, that is the distinction Justice Alito drew in the Tibble v. Edison case. You see these disclosures. Well, look at a prospectus, for example, 50 pages of material. And and keep in mind, in a plan (laughs) where you have, uh, let's say you have 15 options, and and some of these 403B plans have hundreds of options. Right. Does anyone really believe, first of all, that the participants read 50-page prospectuses on 10 funds? Of course not. But even more so, does any fiduciary read the prospectus on each fund in the plan? No way. I've never seen one yet. Me neither. So I agree. Actual, that, that shows vividly, in my view, the idea of actual knowledge not being enough to simply be attributable to a participant because there's some in the fine print on page 37, footnote four, there's some reference to whatever is the subject. And, and as to willful blindness, that would be akin to somebody saying, I'm going to be not informed about my retirement plan because I want to be in a position so that I can sue over a longer period of time, six years rather than three, so that I don't know what's going on. Nobody does that. Nobody is even aware of that. And it would be if you had a sign with three foot lettering and neon lights saying you could be paying institutional rates 
but you're paying retail in this billion dollar plan and you close your eyes, that would be willful blindness. But that just doesn't exist. People care too much about their retirement assets and they don't have the level of knowledge to make that distinction. And people simply don't read these things. And even if they do, they don't understand. No. They don't have the knowledge to really, you know, the industry provides a lot of data and information, but what really matters is insights, being able to take that data and information and interpret it. And that's where I think disclosure falls short. And even disclosure, even if you look at the 404A5 and the 408B2 disclosures that the DOL provided leeway, and, and I think with pressure from the industry, so you don't necessarily have a consistent format across those disclosure documents. You have the DOL specifying these are the types of information that need to be provided, but they can be in different formats. And, you know, I've seen just throughout my career that in some cases, some record keepers are actually really good about providing simpler language and information around disclosures. And some have made it really, really, really difficult to understand. I mean, I do this stuff, I've done this stuff for a living. And there are times where I've come across disclosures and I'm like, I can't make, I can't make sense of what's up and what's down. I think about from an SEC standpoint, last year, year before this requirement for, in addition to the ADV, the form CRS. Well, some RIAs is an example that didn't have other lines of business. That CRS form was a couple of pages. But for a lot of these bigger institutions, they could be 120, 150 pages to reference all the different lines of business that create conflicts of interest and misalignment of, of interests over time. Like who's going to read through a 120-page disclosure? And even if they do, are they really going to be able to know what questions to ask to get the answers they need? If you don't ask the right questions, you're not going to get the right answers. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just common sense. And you see in a lot of disclosures, some listing of something and then the statement, this may present a conflict of interest. Well, what does that mean? Right. How does, how does an average person, let alone in, in the example I gave earlier, a 39-year accomplished academic physician with years and years of training, even that kind of person, how does that person determine what that means? Right. It is not actual knowledge of what's going on at all. And it certainly is not willful blindness to the reality of what's going on. Right. Let's kind of pivot as, as you know, we start to wrap up. Where, where do you see the future of litigation going? You know, it's been interesting. There's been a couple of other firms, Kaposi Adler's one, Nichols Castor, that have gotten into this. I believe that, that Kaposi Adler filed over 100 cases last year. And it's interesting because they are literally taking the language almost verbatim from like complaints you filed and then kind of slapping their name on it. What's been interesting is it seems to me that while you kind of honed your knowledge over what works and what what hasn't worked, they, they kind of use the playbook that you created years ago. And, you know, I know Salesforce is an example that I believe might be under appeal, but that the charges were, the allegations were dismissed. And it was interesting, the angles they were arguing were things that I think you probably learned years ago, you know, weren't the ones that were most successful in terms of, you know, driving the outcomes you were looking for. So number one, kind of what you're feeling about, you know, they say that imitation, I think, is the highest form of flattery, right? That that you've got these other firms now that are essentially taking your work products and using it in some ways as their own. But then also, where do you see the future of litigation going? And, and historically, 
And I think it's because there aren't punitive damages. You know, this isn't like an asbestos case or anything. There's no punitive damages under ERISA. And so you hear a lot about fiduciary fear mongering, I think. I'm just not sure the size of plans down market. You see, you see litigation has really been in the largest companies in America and really large plans probably used to be over a billion dollars, seen them come down to maybe half a billion dollars. But it's really still litigation is in a large, you know, the large market. And I suspect that's because the economics, if you have to, you know, mortgage your house in order to fund the, the case, you, you got to go after a target that's big enough where you can make the business case for it and down market small plans. You hear a lot about fear around 10 or 15 or 20 or $30 million plans, you know, the risk of litigation. I would say that the risk of operational failure is much higher than the risk of litigation in those plans, just because I don't think they provide the economics that could make it work for someone like you. What's your thought on where the future of litigation is going and in terms of size of plan, but also around what topics and, and you know, after kind of fees have been worked through, where, where do you see it going? Yes, it's a good question. Having been in the wilderness alone for many years, when the last thing anybody wanted to do is to file one of these cases and see them these cases dismissed as they were getting dismissed in the early years, it doesn't bother me to see these cases, even cases that have been, without mentioning firms that have used even our own language, much less our theories against various uh, defendants. I can speak to what we do. And I think it's important that any law firm that takes on a case like this do this, which is to thoroughly investigate what's going on, really get every bit of available information. And also there is information you can request, any ERISA participant can request of the sponsor to uh, look at what is obtained and make an assessment with the idea being that you will take that case to its conclusion, no matter what the commitment of resources is that's required. That's the commitment we make in every case. Whether some of the other firms that have filed these cases make that commitment or not, only they can say. But my hope is that people do take this approach and then stay for the end, because that's the important thing for the workers that they represent and the retirees they represent, as opposed to thinking that they'll shortcut things or cut corners. And I'm not saying anybody's doing that, but I am saying that it's important to take the long-term approach if the benefits are going to be maximized for the participants in a plan. It's interesting that you say that because there was a case I just read about a couple of weeks ago I think WakeMed was the plant sponsor in North Carolina, and uh, I don't know who the, the the law firm was. They were it basically in under a year. You know, you talked about taking it to the end when you look at it, at an ABB or you look at a Boeing or you look at a Lockheed, where you're talking about nearly a decade, in some cases more than a decade of seeing it through to the end. In this case, it was a you know a settlement. They went to mediation, I think, in the summer. It was filed and like the complaint was filed in maybe April of 2020. They agreed to mediation in the summer. They recently agreed to a settlement and it was $975,000. There were like 
13,000 participants and a billion dollars in assets. And if I just, if I take out, if I just think just using 30%, maybe as a contingency fee, it was like, you know, those participants are going to get on average about 50 bucks towards their, their retirement out of that. I mean, I just, when I read that, I was like, this feels more like a shakedown than anything. That is a, a, a danger. And let's look at it from the standpoint of a, a law firm or an insurance company or a plan sponsor making an assessment, if they know that they are in for a multi-year battle, a battle where the other side is going to take it wherever it goes, as long as it goes, no matter what the resource commitment is and no matter what the length of time is, which is the approach we've taken, then when they consider the question of a settlement, it's just simple fact that they're going to assess whether that kind of an approach will be taken by the plaintiff's law firm in the litigation. And if they conclude it won't, there's no reason to settle for the maximum amount or to settle for an amount that they would settle for if they believe that it would go all the way. It's no different than any other negotiation if you think your uh, opponent is going to bail out early, then why would you offer more money in a, in an, any negotiation situation? So, and again, I'm not criticizing here anyone. I, I don't know who handled the case you just mentioned, but it's so important to make that long-term commitment. And if it isn't made and the defendant can't see that it is made, and, and frankly, the way you show that is what you do over time over a group of cases, over a period of time, where the defendant knows that they're in it for the duration, then and only then will they evaluate the case with the true exposure that they face. Right. So where I see things going. Yes, thanks. Is there's been an ex, uh, some say an explosion of cases filed in the last couple of years, especially by a couple of firms. We have continued to file cases, but in a very much the same approach we've always used, digging into the cases deeply and committing to, in every case, to take it all the way to its duration, even if that's a decade or more. Fees have obviously come down greatly in the industry. One, uh, multiple judges have said in, in our cases that the litigation has brought fees down by over $2 billion annually, which is a great thing for American workers and retirees. And there will come a day, in my view, when the cases, there aren't many cases that are out there that will be brought because of the fee reductions and the process improvements by fiduciaries and advisors in looking at what they should. And, and, and operating with an, what the, the law says is an eye single to the participant's interest with that always locked in as a beacon to follow. There will likely always be employers who still or sponsors who still don't uh, take that duty seriously enough, the result being excessive fees or imprudent investments in some plans. But I, I look for the litigation to continue and to continue in lower levels of asset size than has been the case in the past. But you're right. It is a matter of resources. And for you to for a plaintiff's attorney to prove what's got to be proven in these cases, it takes just as much money paying an expert to review 
the documents that make up the process in a, let's say, a $100 million plan or a $50 million plan as in a $500 million plan. And again, those costs are not contingent. Those are real costs you put out. It takes much the same time to fight a motion to dismiss and to fight uh, other motions such as class certification and summary judgment in a case where it's a $50 million plan compared to a billion dollar plan. So there is a finite limit in my view to the size of plans that will result in likely litigation, at least involving firms that are willing to make a commitment to the long term. And what do you think, what would you say in your estimation is that kind of lower boundary, if you will? I don't see it as a bright line, Josh, but I I think that when you start talking about plans that have uh, less than $250 million in assets, the economies of scale, so to speak, are very difficult for a firm to take on and take on the risk and the cost for the likely outcome. Got it. So, you know, as we wrap, the whole purpose of this podcast is to help make ERISA fiduciaries smarter. One of my favorite lines that I ever read years ago in a judge's ruling was that it's not enough for fiduciaries to have a full heart and an empty mind. And so, you know, I'm really committed to trying to help make ERISA fiduciaries smarter. So I typically wrap up and end by asking guests, what's their single best piece of advice to ERISA fiduciaries in order to help them perform at their best. So what would you, this would kind of work you out of a job perhaps, but. And that's fine. I mean, if that happens, that's a great thing for American workers and retirees and we'll move on to something else. Right. So what would you, what would you, in order to avoid getting a call from, from you and your firm one day, what would you, what would be your best piece of advice to ERISA fiduciaries? Follow the absolute beacon that you should operate this plan with the sole exclusive interest of the participants fully at heart. If you do that, the decisions will flow from that that are the right decisions and you'll be free of fiduciary liability exposure. That's great. I think that's a great idea to end on. So it has been a real pleasure, Jerry. I've I've really enjoyed the conversation and, and your insights and just appreciate you you coming on the show. Well, Josh, I appreciate your interest and your your work on behalf of participants and for all the right reasons. Uh, you've had a major impact yourself. I think the kind of attention you're devoting to this issue can only benefit people as they try to develop their retirement across the country. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks for listening to today's episode with Jerry Schlichter. If you'd like more information or to learn more, go to fiduciaryworks.com slash podcast. I've got some great resources there for you, including each episode along with show notes, articles, and free tools. Make sure to sign up on the site so we can stay connected. I'd love to help you stay in the know about what's happening in the world of corporate retirement plans. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show, or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Also, head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you've already read those books, please consider leaving a review on Amazon. And if you want an easy way to help support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help other people find the show and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to the Fiduciary You Podcast. Podcast.